Hello, hello from the British Broadcasting Century podcast. A new podcast telling the story of old radio from Marconi to the Beeb and onward to Savoy Hill, the Pips, the Proms and ultimately Mrs Brown's Boys. We may not get that far. Join me, Paul Carenza, as we inform, educate and entertain. Featuring classic clips. This is two Emma Talk ripple testing. This is two Emma Talk ripple testing. Special guests. This is the Emperor Rasko. And reenactments of landmark moments of broadcasting's big story. DJ Burroughs is playing songs like I Love a Lassie by Harry Lauder. I love a lassie. Search for the British Broadcasting Century wherever you get podcasts or find us on Facebook or Twitter at BB Century and let's celebrate a 100 years of broadcasting. The British Broadcasting Century podcast with me, Paul Carenza. Closing down now, CQ. Closing down now. Welcome to the History of European Theatre podcast. My name is Philip and thanks for joining me on this journey through millennia of theatrical history. Episode 19, From Old to New and Menander. Last time we enjoyed Aristophanes' vision of women in charge, but this was a fantasy born of desperation with the political system and life in Athens was not going to get much better. The glory days are past now and the historic record becomes less detailed through the years of decline in Athens after the end of the Peloponnesian War. We have no extant drama from the period until we get to Menander, who was born some 40 years after the death of Aristophanes. But theatre did not die in the period. The Dionysia, the Linnea and other festivals continued, but the new political constraints meant that the old comedy of political satire was no longer possible, and it morphed through middle comedy, of which we have no examples other than fragments, to the new comedy form, where the sparse records mean we rely almost entirely on the work of Menander and quite limited examples of that to define the genre. So, before we get to Menander, we need to know what has been going on in Athens and the Greek world. Following the defeat by Sparta in 404 BCE, Lysander, the Spartan, organised the election of a group of 30 pro-Spartan aristocrats to govern the city. Although they retained some semblance of democracy by creating an elected body of 3,000 men to assist in government, their rule was an oligarchy that was guided by Sparta. Democratic laws were largely repealed and the rights of the citizens heavily curtailed. The oligarchy embarked on a purge of the supporters of democracy and were ruthless in rooting out, executing or banishing anyone who was associated with or had sympathies for the previous regimes. Corruption was rife and the assets of the murdered and banished were seized and distributed to supporters of the new regime. The oligarchy quickly gained a reputation for cruelty, not least because they would send gangs of thugs into the city to intimidate the population. The total number of punishments and killings is unknown, but assumed to be a very big number. It's speculated that as much as 5% of the city population was exiled or murdered. But for those who survived this period, the suffering was mercifully short. After eight months, enough opposition built up for a revolution to be planned, and the 30 were overthrown. It was decided that anyone involved apart from the 30 themselves and some other senior leaders would be spared. In the years after the execution of the Thirty, and still under Spartan influence, Athens struggled to find a way forward and reconcile with these events. Democracy was re-established, but it was only in a very limited form. In 338 BCE, Alexander the Great took the city, and a period of Macedonian rule began. Two years later, he led a coalition of Greek soldiers, including Athenians and Spartans, against Persia, 
but he found that the loyalties of his coalition of soldiers was difficult to control. The men retained their loyalty to their polis first and foremost, and therefore also the rivalries and animosities towards soldiers from other city-states. Fighting together did not come easy to them, so Alexander's relationship with Athens and the other city-states was always a fractious one. This was nothing new. Although ruled from Macedon, the Hellenistic world remained a place of small states whose alliances shifted periodically, and who worked together only when they really had to, and even Alexander found controlling this a difficult task. When he died, both Athens and Sparta took the fight to Macedon, but failed to break their dominance, and Athens was ruled by a succession of puppet dictators put in place by the generals who succeeded Alexander. Some of the democratic institutions were restored, but the freedoms of the past were never tolerated. Within this context, Athens and other city-states established new leagues, but they were never as powerful as the old Dalian or Spartan leagues, and although there continued to be some interpolis fighting, Macedon brought most city-states under its control, or at least into its sphere of influence. Even when the Macedonian yoke was finally removed in 307 BCE, Athens didn't take up a position of political influence and looked to Macedon and Egypt as the regional power brokers for leadership. The traumas of the later years of the war, defeat and the loss of democracy changed Athens forever and, not surprisingly, changed the theatre too. Old comedy gave way to middle comedy somewhere around 400 BCE. Plautus, usually translated as Wealth, by Aristophanes, is his last extant play and shows a definite move away from the old comedy tradition. That was first performed in 408 BCE and revived in 388 BCE and is usually used as the dividing line between old and middle comedy. Some commentators see it as the only surviving example of middle comedy, some as a transition piece between old and middle. It's perhaps better to describe middle comedy not as a genre in itself, but rather a period between the more easily defined old and new. That period was, roughly speaking, the first 75 years of the 4th century BCE. We have the names of 40 or 50 dramatists who we think worked in that period, producing something like 800 plays before 325 BCE. So however changed the political and intellectual life of the city became under the influence of Macedon, there is no suggestion that the theatre activity was curtailed, in volume at least. There are three essential differences that mark the change from old to middle comedy. Firstly, the parabasis was removed. Second, the chorus was only used as a marker of intervals in the action, and not a tool for the progression of the plot. Thirdly, the subject matter moved to the domestic and cosmopolitan, rather than being specifically Athenian. All of these features were carried on into new comedy. The more general appeal of middle comedy is suggested by evidence for revivals that took place in Sicily and the area around the southern coast of Italy, the area that became known as Magna Graecia and would become the conduit for the astonishing Greek influence in Rome. It's not possible to say if the appeal for the revivals was for literary merit or for social appeal, or indeed if they were adapted for the local audience. The tone of middle comedy is difficult to judge from the fragments, but many include epigrammatic sayings and often poke fun at women and veer towards the misogynistic, suggesting that the theatrical experience was still a male-dominated one. There's a line comparing Plato to a sullen snail, and another that speaks of the sophists expounding mere gabble, 
So there was some of the satiric element of old comedy retained, but the impression is of a gentler and less pointed type of comedy. We can only speculate at the drivers for this change, but the generally accepted picture is that as the population became less and less involved in politics, there was less liking for the barbed political satire and finger-pointing of old comedy. What was the point? Why would the audience engage with political satire when it had no influence over the political decisions or personalities of the day? Also, it seems safe to assume that there was some form of censorship that quite simply prevented overt criticism of the political class. Another factor may have been the rather more prosaic one that the city did not command the wealth it once did. The tributes and booty that previously came to Athens were first diverted to Sparta and then to Macedon, so the city was in much reduced circumstances. Smaller subsidy from the state and fewer wealthy families willing to spend what money they had on theatrical production expenses could well be the reason for the reduction in the chorus size alone. The decline in state sponsorship meant that the theatre dole for the poor was almost certainly removed and theatre-going became a more exclusive pastime for the moneyed and educated classes. The days of universal attendance at the theatre were gone. That contraction can be extrapolated throughout the theatrical production process. Plots became more realistic in their nature and therefore simpler to stage, with most action taking place on a busy street or other outside location. And although masks were still used, other costume seems to have been reduced and no great stage effects were required. As far as we can tell, the plots retold minor elements from the old and familiar mythic tales, but with a moral perspective and at the human level. As scholarship for middle comedy works only from the fragments and names of plays, details are very sketchy. We know virtually nothing about the poets of the middle comedy period, but we have just a few names and dates. In this context, I hesitate to say they are facts, but here is something of what we think we know. Anaxandriades of Rhodes is recorded as winning at both festivals in the 370s and 360s, but has only 65 plays attributed to him suggesting that he was not as prolific as many, but that the quality of his work was high. His reputation must have been good, as he was called to the Macedonian court by Alexander's father Philip to write a play as part of the celebrations after Macedonian victory over the polis of Olynthus in 348 BCE. This is taken by some commentators as a sign of the way Athenian influence was declining as the hegemony of Greek states under Macedonia grew stronger. Eubulus was working between 370 and 360 BCE and records six victories at the Linnea festival. Commentary on his plays from antiquity suggests that he used mythological subjects and parodied the tragedies while still making criticism of city leadership. Some of his plays were produced by Aristophanes' son Philippus. Antiphanes, 388-311 BCE, was a foreigner who settled in Athens and became a citizen. Somewhere between 245 and 365 plays are attributed to him, depending on your opinion. From the fragments we have, it seems he wrote both on mythological subjects and comedies of personal intrigue. Alexis won at the Linnea in the 350s BCE and was placed in the lower ranking several times. He's said to have lived to 106 and his later plays were part of new comedy. Plutarch reports that he died on stage while being crowned victor at a festival. Fragments and titles that survive suggest that he wrote about 250 plays. From the fragments it can be seen that personal ridicule still survived up to about 360 BCE, as his play Parasitos laid into Plato among others.
His plays appear to have lots of repetition, where he used very similar plots repeatedly, and there are even examples of identical passages of dialogue being used in different plays. So, the overall impression we have of middle comedy is that of repetitive use of stock characters drawn as caricatures using very similar dialogue in similar plots. But there is a hint of the retention of some satiric elements as the transition started. Fortunately, with the move to new comedy, we have a little more to go on. New comedy really got going about 50 years after the death of Aristophanes. A group of writers appeared who crafted middle comedy into a more obvious genre, which was a type of farcical comedy. Although not related to the development, but a useful historical marker, it was about the time when Alexander the Great ascended the throne of Macedon in 366 BCE. We have the names of 64 playwrights who worked in the new comedy genre and produced over a thousand plays. From that corpus, only one mostly complete play survives, along with many other fragments, some quite substantial, by Menander. Fragments of various lengths from other playwrights also survive, but nothing anywhere close to a complete plays. The style of new comedy has been best described as comedy of errors. The plots continued the middle comedy tradition of relying on confusions created by mistaken identity, which often involved sets of twins. The circumstances of the plot are then very contrived for comic effect. The tragicomedy of Euripides has some influence in the way potential tragedy turns into comedy in a pivotal moment of recognition. And there's always a happy ending, usually with a wedding at the culmination of the story. The characters were generally stereotypes rather than individuals drawn with any depth and usually combined a profession with that character type. So the cook was a glutton, the lawyer a schemer, the guardian a cruel miser, the doctor a charlatan, and the prostitute vulgar but kind-hearted. From the representation of masks from the time, 27 character types have been identified, which doesn't suggest much diversity across hundreds of plays, but Menander is picked out particularly as a playwright who made an attempt at individuality by giving each of his characters a particular habit to differentiate them from the others. The plots revolved around a boy-meets-girl-boy-loses-girl-boy-regains-girl type of scenario. The girl, essentially the heroine of the play, suffers mild jeopardy, often centred around the retention of her virginity, and is usually thought to be of a lower class than she eventually is revealed to be. The child separated from her wealthy family many years ago is a common trope, and allows for the continuation of the tradition of the recognition scene that began in the early tragedies and was exploited by Sophocles and Euripides to the greatest effect. Sometimes the same effect is used for the young hero, who turns out to be of noble birth, a fact revealed towards the end of the play. With enormous amounts of pleasure at the near-miraculous revelations, slaves can become freemen, the poor wealthy, and the orphaned taken into the hearts and home of the wealthy, loving, overjoyed and recently discovered parents. The plots are sentimental and not immune to pathos, but arguably also moral. There's a concern for the plight of the poor and downtrodden, but all this is done very lightly. Slaves are often shown as more cunning or clever than their masters, Given much of the audience would have been slave owners, it's an interesting paradox. Did they sit there watching the plays wondering if their slaves at home were plotting against them, perhaps making use of their home comforts at this very moment while they were in the theatre? Or did they feel reminded that it was wise to be kind to a slave who might one day be your master? 
Most likely, they simply saw the portrayal of the slave as comedy because it was so removed from the lived experience and all would still be in order once they got home. Much of this is sounding very familiar. The mistaken twins, the reversal of fates, the revealing of the true hero, the wedding as the climax, these are all elements reused and enhanced throughout history. Just think of Shakespeare, Moliere, Beaumarchais, Goldoni, Sheridan, Goldsmith, Oscar Wilde, Gilbert and Sullivan, and on even to Whitehall farces. Much overused, on some occasions knowingly, but still the source of comedy that appeals to a mass audience right up to today. Structurally, new comedies had a prologue and five distinct sections that were divided by choral song and dance, the five-act play to all intents and purposes. It seems likely that the choral interludes were not written as part of the play, but left to the chorus leader or the producer to improvise or create during the rehearsal. Of the dramatists, we know relatively little. Philemon was probably the most popular with the contemporary audience and Menander's main rival in the genre. He was born in 362 BCE and is known to have been producing plays in Athens by 330 BCE. He was a native of Syracuse on Sicily, but lived and worked in Athens, becoming a citizen at some point. He produced 97 plays and 57 titles and fragments have survived. Two plays are thought to be the basis of later Latin adaptations by Plautus in the Roman period. His contemporaries seem to have appreciated his humour more than Menander's, but Menander thought himself the better poet. He is reported to have asked Philemon if he ever felt ashamed when he had gained a victory over him. Philemon died around 262 BCE. Dephilus was born at Sinope in the northern Black Sea coast, now in Turkey, and we really only know his plays through the plagiarism of Plautus and Terence in the Roman period. Both use his plots and characters and acknowledge their debt to him. Dephilus had three recorded wins at the Linnea festival and in the middle of the 3rd century BCE won a competition of revivals, pushing Menander into second place. Philemon and Dephilus are thought to have been the equals of Menander in literary terms, but we have some incomplete histories for other more minor poets. Philippides was writing in the 330s BCE. He was said to be an influential intimate of King Lysimachus, one of the generals who succeeded Alexander on his death, each of whom took charge of a segment of his vast empire. It was his interventions with Lysimachus that persuaded the general to help Athens recover the port city of Piraeus and its defensive forts in 285 BCE. At about the same time, Philippides was elected as the official Athenian representative at the Pan-Hellenic Games. He said to have died in his old age, just as he was unexpectedly announced as a competition winner at a festival. Apollodorus of Gala was born in Sicily and lived from 340 to 290 BCE. He's been credited with seven comedies, but one of these is also credited to Apollodorus of Charistus in the same list of plays, so you can see the records are at best, well, problematic in the details. And so to Menander. He was born about 342 BCE and died about 292 BCE. He wrote something like 105 plays, but only scored eight victories at the Linnea Festival. There are five plays that survive in various states of incompleteness and many fragments. His first win at the festival was in 316 BCE for Discalus, by chance the only surviving play. 
He may also have won at the Dionysia a year later, but these details are not very clear. Some commentators say eight victories is spectacular, others that it suggests he was not so popular. His character was said to be flirtatious and perhaps he was something of a dandy, but this is all from Roman commentators some 400 years later, so who really knows? More reliably, he was reported to be rich and possessed of a quick and urbane wit, but also prone to melancholy. He had many affairs with women, some of which seem to have tarnished his social reputation. His plays are peppered with tirades against marriage, which are less than balanced by the occasional reference to matrimonial happiness. He was attached to Athens, preferring to stay there rather than take up offerings of patronage from Egypt and Macedon. He owned a seaside villa at Piraeus, where he kept his long-term mistress, so perhaps it wasn't just the pull of the two Athenian festivals that kept him close to the city. He seems certainly to have been born into a good wealthy family, and possibly a literary one. It's thought that he was the son of Diopithus, an Athenian general, which would make him the nephew of Alexis, the aforementioned successful comic poet of the middle comedy period. This is all quite probable, as he seems to have moved in good circles, being either a friend or pupil of the philosopher Theophratus, who was himself a pupil of Aristotle, and ran Aristotle's school of philosophy after his death. Menander also had some sort of friendship with the city governor Demetrius of Phalerum, who also moved in literary and philosophical circles. Demetrius was a Macedonian-era appointment as governor and ruled for ten years. He's regarded as the last of the great Athenian orators, and after his fall from grace in the city and a period of exile, he's given some credit as being a key player in the foundation of the famous library at Alexandria. So Menander was no slouch being associated with him. He also received patronage from Ptolemy Sota, the historian and Alexandrian general who inherited rule in Egypt from Alexander and founded the Ptolemaic dynasty that was to rule Egypt until the death of his descendant Cleopatra in 30 BCE. As for the plays themselves, it seems likely that Menander was part of the conscious change to the new comedy style. We have just one speech from an early play, Drunkenness, where the politician Calamedon is attacked in a style that is close to Aristophanes. Calamedon was a member of the pro-Macedonian faction in the city at the time and is described by later writers as brash and anti-democratic, but it seems that Menander moved away from the satiric style and embraced new comedy after this. Precise dating of his plays is difficult, but an early play, Anger, can be put at 321 BCE, when Menander was in his early 20s. He was very much at home in the group of new comedy dramatists who admired and imitated Euripides. He shared with Euripides the ability to represent good observations of everyday life and analyse the inner emotions, and both were fond of the pithy moral maxim to drive home their point. The problem that we keep coming back round to is that we only have one near-complete play and others in fragmentary form, about 4,000 lines in total. It's estimated to be just 5% of his output, and it's on that that we have to make judgments. Apart from the almost complete Discalus which is evidenced in the Linnea at 317 BCE, we have the following from Menander that have survived. There are about 700 lines of The Arbitration, which is estimated to be about half the play, and 450 lines, so about a third, of The Girl With Her Hair Cut Short and The Girl From Samos. 
400 lines of The Men of Sicyon were recovered as packaging from the mummy case of a minor Egyptian official in Upper Egypt, and we have a similar volume of a play called The Shield. Other texts are fragments of less than 100 lines per play. A sad end for works that at one time entertained thousands and released them at least for a short while from their troubled times. His relatively short life by the standards of the ancient poets may be explained by the nature of his death. Reportedly, he died by drowning while swimming near his home in the harbour at Piraeus. He was honoured by the city with a tomb constructed on the road to Athens, which was mentioned by Pausanias in his record of his travels in Greece about a hundred years later. Many carved busts of Menander survive, although who they truly represent is often disputed. One famous example, now kept in the Vatican, was initially thought to be the Emperor Gaius Marius. The attribution of so many likenesses to the playwright is because of his popularity in the Roman period. Menander was much adapted by Plautus and Terence and others in the Roman period, and through this influenced the development of comedy in European theatre to the Renaissance and beyond. The Roman versions were significant adaptations and reworkings and conjoinings of the original works, rather than straight translations into Latin. These original works didn't survive in full through the Middle Ages. Beyond the Roman period, it's unclear how long the plays remained known and available. Twenty-three were said to have survived in Constantinople into the 11th century, but were never found. Later, there were rumours of a complete works in the library of Federico da Montefeltro in Urbano, Italy. He was a renowned civic leader and humanist in the early 15th century, but his library was taken by Cesare Borgia when he captured the city and was supposedly transferred to the Vatican. Since then, there's been no trace of the fabled complete works. Until the early 20th century, all that we had directly from Menander was limited to quotations from antiquity and fragments totalling about 1,600 lines. But in 1906, the Cairo Codex was discovered. This included large parts of the three plays mentioned previously and fragments of two others. About the same time, a fragment of 115 lines was found, again in papier-mâché of a mummy case. This was already a significant increase on the available texts, and then, in 1952, papyrus including segments of the Old and New Testament, other early Christian writings, Homer and Menander, were discovered at the site of a monastery in Egypt. The find included the near-complete text of Menander's Discalus. The papyri was removed in secret, and ended up in Switzerland, where it was bought by Martin Bodmer. He published them in 1959 with notes and a French translation as the Bodmer Papyrus. They now reside as part of a huge library collection at the Martin Bodmer Foundation near Geneva. And we can live in hope that further discoveries will be made. In 2003, parchment with 9th century Syriac writing was found. The parchment itself originated from the 4th century and had been washed and reused 500 years later. It's made of calf or lamb skin, so in its time was a very expensive document to make, and the washing or scraping of original text from old documents to reuse them, base material, was common practice. In some cases, the original text is still decipherable, and in this case, a part of Discalus and another unknown play were identified. We can't leave Menander without giving him the last word. He left many pithy quotes and epigrams that were very popular through antiquity, which is part of the reason he is so popular with the Romans. 
Perhaps for us, he's most notably quoted by St Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 33, with bad company corrupts good manners. And for his nearer contemporaries, probably more famously by Julius Caesar, as he crossed the Rubicon, thereby breaking Roman law and entering the city with an army, knowing that it meant civil war, saying, let the die be cast. This coming via Plutarch in his life of Pompey. Less specifically, we have, there is nothing worse than sorrow, and he whom the gods loves dies young, or he who labours diligently need never despair, for all things are accomplished by diligence and labour. And also, the sword wounds the body, sharp words the mind. The man who runs lives to fight again. And health and intellect are the two blessings of life. I hesitate, but hey, don't shoot the messenger, when I quote, Marriage, if one face the truth, is an evil, but a necessary one. And, for a bit of balance, there is no such cosy combination as a man and wife. And, with even more trepidation, of all the wild beasts of land and sea, the woman is the wildest. And, definitely one to put at the end of a podcast, nothing is more useful than silence. Next time, we'll take a longer look at the only surviving complete play by Menander, As you've heard, it's something of a miracle that it's known to us at all. Discolus, or the misanthrope, is the story of a grumpy old man who learns that self-imposed solitude is not a good way of life and has serious and comic consequences. And in the meantime, please do take a listen to Paul Carenza's British Broadcasting Century. I'm really enjoying his story of the creation and development of radio, which he tells in a very entertaining way that really brings this segment of entertainment history to life. It's full of great stories and larger-than-life characters and well worth a listen. I look forward to your company next time, but if you have any comments or concerns, in the meantime, you can contact me by email at thoetp at gmail.com or via Twitter at thoetp. (laughs) 